I'm Dr. Omar Khan. I'm Dr. Shannon Gowland. I'm Dr. Tiffany Dursey. And welcome to Vet Sessions. Welcome back to Vet Sessions. My name is Dr. Tiffany Dursey, and I will be your host today. I'm happy to introduce Dr. Melissa MacGyver, a board-certified veterinary surgeon who works at the Ontario Veterinary College Health Science Centre. She is here today to speak to us about cranial cruciate ligament injuries and a surgical technique called a TPLO. Before we get started, Melissa, hello. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how it is you came to work here at OVC? Hi, Tiffany. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Yeah, so I was originally a University of Guelph graduate and completed my veterinary degree at the Ontario Veterinary College in 2013. During this time, I actually changed my ultimate career goals multiple times. Um, I originally wanted to pursue small animal surgery. However, because of all of the great mentors at OVC, I considered large animal surgery, large animal cardiology, (laughs) and small animal cardiology. Um, Ultimately, I used to figure skate competitively, and my sports background led me back into the direction of small animal surgery with more of an interest in kind of minimally invasive surgeries. So after my graduation from OVC, I completed a rotating internship at the 404 Veterinary Emergency and Referral Hospital in Newmarket, Ontario. Then I completed a surgical internship at the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida, and finally my residency at Texas A&M University in College Station, Texas. I had a really great mentor in surgery while at Texas and concurrently completed a Master of Science in Stem Cell Therapy under his guidance. I then returned to OVC to hopefully help train the future veterinarians graduating yes. today. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So you've been to many different places all over the U.S. and it's nice to have you back here. And then uh, not to age myself, but of course you were here when we uh, opened. So we um, opened uh, the Primary Healthcare Center in 2010. And so if you were 2013, you yeah. got to come here as well. But we probably didn't have a lot of clients at that time. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So, so that's okay. Uh, but we love having you here as a surgeon and you are a very, very busy service. So we're so happy to have you here today. So uh, so let's jump right in and let's talk about cranial cruciate, cruciate ligament injuries. Uh, and we're going to call them, they're also known as CCL injuries. That's easier to say. Um, in human medicine, um, as I understand, this is sometimes referred to as an anterior cruciate ligament injury or an ACL injury. Um, and so a lot of people will know it like that, either CCL or ACL injury. Um, nonetheless, this is a very common injury that we see in general practice and orthopedic practice uh, for that matter. It's uh, something that we see in dogs and cats, uh, but the poster child is usually a middle-aged female large breed dog that presents either with non-weight bearing or toe-touching lameness. Does that sound about right? Yeah. Okay, good. I remember that correctly from school. Okay. And so um, today we would like to focus more on the surgical repair, um, not just because you are a surgeon, but because it's such a common surgery that general uh, practitioners refer for. Um, So tell us about CCL repair in dogs and what is the best surgical repair method for a CCL injury? 
Yeah, so that's a really good question, and it's a difficult one, actually, for me to answer. Mm-hmm. Um, I say that because when I studied for boards, we had to review all the stifle chapters, or, okay. or the current papers, and there were about 500. Oh, And so wow. it really tells you that there's <laughs> really not a best technique, because I think, you know, if that was the case, we'd only have one paper on it, and we would sure. all be doing the same surgery. That would make it easier. Yeah. So <laughs> I think, you know, new ones have been created in the past few years. We have TPLO, TT. Um, there's a triple uh, tibial osteotomy. There's a modified macaque procedure, which is a new one, uh, CBLO. So there's just a wow. lot of them out there. Um, I think this just really shows how important research is on the topic as mm-hmm. we still, as I said, don't have the perfect surgical option. But, uh, you know, at OVC, the most common procedure performed here is the tibial plateau leveling osteotomy or what we know as the TPLO. Okay. And so uh, with the TPLO, uh, what exactly does that involve? Yeah, so it's it's a good question. And I, I always struggle on the best way to explain it, to mm-hmm. kind of simplify it for owners and, and people that are wanting to learn. And so I kind of equate the tibia or the shin bone uh, to having a slope or angle to the top part of it. And it's similar to, to a hill. The femur, the thigh bone, actually sits on top of this hill and is held in place by by the cruciate ligament or that cranial cruciate ligament. And so as such, I kind of equate the thigh bone to a wagon and the cruciate ligament to the person that's holding the wagon on the hill or that shin bone. So when the dog undergoes a cruciate ligament rupture, we essentially lose the person that holds the wagon on a hill. Okay. And as such, every time the dog steps, our thigh bone falls down the hill moving backwards and our shin bone moves forwards. As the dog lifts its leg, preparing for its next step, the thigh bones kind of realign, so it comes back forward. And then as the dog steps again, it slides backwards again. And that instability creates the pain response as the surrounding tissues are really stretched and the body sends inflammatory mediators into the joint, creating that joint swelling and further pain we see on examination. So the TPLO procedure, in essence, involves making a semicircular cut in the top of the shin bone and rotating that top segment or the hill portion, Mm -hmm. so to speak, and making the hill more flat. And then we stabilize those two pieces of that shin bone with a bone plate and screws after we've rotated it. And so if we go back to our wagon on a hill analogy where we have the cruciate ligament holding the wagon or the thigh bone on the hill, which is our shin bone, Now with surgery, we have eliminated the hill or flattened it, and thus there's really not a need for our cranial cruciate ligament to hold that wagon because there's no hill for it to fall down, so the bones just sit on top of one another. That is a great analogy. I actually have never heard that before. So that's very helpful. And I, and, and I appreciate you um, trying to explain it because, of course, um, I have seen post-op pictures and I think the pictures are most helpful. But to explain it that way makes a lot of sense because I think, you know, again, when we're trying to explain it to clients or to students, um, you know, why would we, you know, it's just this little ligament that ruptured. Like, why is it this big, you know, orthopedic procedure with bones, and, you know, the plates and, and that kind of thing. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, um, so with the TPLO surgery, what is the success rate and what would be the risks of this TPLO surgery for patients? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, the success rate is pretty high for a TPLO surgery with as great as 90% of dogs, depending on the paper that you read, returning mm-hmm. to normal or almost normal function. 
In terms of the risks, so the risks are very similar to any surgery that that a dog or human, for that matter, would undergo. Um, usually with a TPLO surgery, the complication rate is approximately around uh, 11%. And complications can include that continued instability. So if we don't flatten okay. the hill enough, the bones are still going to move. And there has been some research out of the University of Florida that have actually looked at dogs post-TPLO, and they still do have some of that shifting. Okay. But they seem to not have a lameness. So I think that's why there's a lot of research Mm. being done because, you know, the TPLO is great and the dogs recover so well. But if you actually look at what we're doing, we may not be completely solving the problem. Okay. So the other complications are our joint infection because we are going into the joint and anytime we cut, there's a risk of infection. Uh, Fracture of the shin bone if the dog's really overactive Mm -hmm. postoperatively. Infection of the implants, uh, slow healing, uh, and then meniscal tears, which we'll talk about in a bit, but those are our two little shock absorbers in the knee. Uh, And then obviously anesthetic complications, just to name a few. Right, yeah, but um, like you said, it has a very good success rate, so still Mm -hmm. certainly something good to consider. Mm -hmm. Um, I know um, clients will often ask me, you know, how quickly should the CCL injury be repaired? And and, um, I mean, I understand that it's not necessarily an emergency surgery, um, and I don't know who, you know, how easy it is to um, to put a number on it, um, but there is um, some question about how soon the surgical repair is required um, of either a full tear or a partial tear. Yeah, so that's also that's also really you're asking a lot of really good questions. <laughs> um, Thank you. I think um, starting with the par- I'll start with a partial tear. Okay. So every surgeon might be a little bit different on this. For me, I I really like to fix partial cruciate ligament ruptures as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when I say as soon as possible, it doesn't mean that we're going into emergency, yeah, emergency surgery, surgery that day, but right, we try right. and get them into a referral practice or you possible. know wherever they're doing the TPLO as soon as possible. Um, and that's because the more unstable the knee is, the more the the thigh bone and the shin bone move and grind against each other because Mm -hmm. of that instability. And so, you know, going back to our analogy, the wagon keeps falling down the hill every time the dog steps. And in the knee, there are these two C-shaped shock absorbers called menisci. And one of them on the inside of the leg, the medial one, becomes traumatized each time the bone the bones grind against each other. And so with a partial tear, the cranial cruciate ligament may still although weakly, uh, be holding that wagon on the hill, right? Because it's not completely torn, which means that the meniscus may not yet be damaged because we're not having that full movement or instability of the two bones. And so at this time, when I go to surgery, I can confirm the partial tear by scoping. So I place a small camera in the knee and it kind of magnifies everything. And I can say, yes, this is a partial tear or no, it's not. Mm -hmm. If it's not, then we don't proceed with the surgery. But if it is, we'll still proceed with the surgery. And the benefit of that is because if the partial tear, if we leave it alone and it progresses to a full tear, there's more of a chance that that meniscus can be torn because we have more instability of the knee. Right. And unfortunately, we don't have ways to repair the meniscus. The blood supply is just not very good. And so if there is a meniscal tear, we have to take that tear out. And it's been shown in the literature that a partial meniscal removal, so for those tears when Mm -hmm. we have to take it out, does predispose them to osteoarthritis because it does affect the distribution of the force. So we no longer have that shock absorber and what I call hoop stress where the Mm -hmm. meniscus kind of absorbs the force and spreads it out evenly. So because we don't have that, a lot of force is just placed on one small area. And so that predisposes to arthritis. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. So so trying to get them in sooner than later. And like you said, not an emergency 
emergency surgery. So you don't want, we don't want people like showing up at emergency, yeah. <laughs> but certainly trying to get it, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the dog in as soon as possible. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think, you know, with the, the TPLO, you know, our goal with the surgery is not to eliminate osteoarthritis. There's right. something, the knee is unstable. You know, we're trying to stabilize it, but we're not taking it back to its normal position. And so our goal is to actually slow the arthritis down from developing. And so I think, you know, moving to full tears, um, the longer we wait, there's more instability and the body says, hey, this is abnormal, mm -hmm. so we need to fix this. And so the body tries to stabilize it itself, and that's right. where we get that buildup of scar, scar tissue, tissue, the medial okay. buttress. Um, and then we get osteoarthritis. And so the longer you wait, the more osteoarthritis will develop. Right. And then I can't take that away. So right. I can stabilize the knee and kind of slow it down from progressing. But if it's okay. already there, I can't, I can't take it back. Right. And in terms of mobility and the reason why we're doing the surgery to begin with is to increase mobility. Yeah. So obviously we want the best success as possible. So, so the sooner the better if, if possible. Yeah. Um, but I do remember like back in the day, if it was a partial tear, a lot of practitioners would say, no, no, don't refer them to the surgery, you know, surgeon, uh, wait until it's completely torn. And so, um, so this is really informative. So for our listeners, you know, earlier, the better partial tear, you know, meet with a surgeon and kind of go from there. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think for, for partial tears, I'll sometimes, you know, leave it up to the owner because, you sure. know, every surgery, you know, I always go back to our oath as a veterinarian to first do no harm. Right. Sure. And so, you know, surgery is not benign. Yep. Um, I love True. it, yep. but, um, you know, I, I always want to do what's best for the dog. And so I think, you know, I, I tell the owners the risks of surgery, but the benefits, and then they kind of come to a decision on what they want to do. And sometimes, you know, if they haven't done conservative management or they want to try that, they, they'll try that first. But I just warn them about that meniscal tear. Absolutely. And so that actually naturally leads into our next question, because um, there are many patients where surgical repair is not an option, you know, whether it's because they've got, um, you know, other, you know, comorbidities or potentially um, it could be cost, it could be age, it could be that the pet has cancer, who knows. Um, so for those where surgical repair is not an option, um, what, um, what do we tell these people or, it, you know, um, what if it's just not a, a surgical option? Are there any upcoming technologies that will make, you know, CCL repair better or less expensive or how do we, what do we say to these people? Yeah. And I think, you know, I always tell the students that, you know, we are, are dealing with people that can afford the surgical repair. And I always sure. think that it's important that, you know, a lot of people have dogs and they may not be able to afford the surgical repair. And that doesn't mm -hmm. mean that their dog should be treated any less differently. We still need to help them with the pain and things like that. And so conservative therapy is an option. Um, I find usually in small dogs and cats, they can almost fully recover from a cruciate ligament rupture with conservative management just mm -hmm. because their weight is so small. Right. I think with larger dogs, it's a little bit more difficult just because they're heavier weight. Sure. Um, especially if they're overweight, which we'll talk about uh, in a, in a mm -hmm. bit, but um, they don't stabilize as well with conservative management when compared to surgery. So I think right. with those dogs, it's a little bit more difficult now mm -hmm. up to about 40% of them can stabilize their knee with conservative treatment, but it's just a little bit more difficult. Okay. So, you know, for me, for conservative management, and I tend to be a little bit different, mm -hmm. um, I will keep them extremely quiet for at least four weeks. So that okay. means they're just going out to the bathroom and back in, no running, jumping, roughhousing. That mm -hmm. means no climbing stairs. A lot of dogs yep. like to follow their owner right up to sure. the laundry room or wherever. Yep. Um, no jumping on and off the bed, right. on and off couches, sure. etc. Yep. Um, so they're going to be confined to a kennel inside. Um, 
And usually I give them pain medications. Mm -hmm. They're going to be on a weight loss diet, especially because they're not moving around. We're going to have to really reduce that. Yeah, that uh, food intake. Now, in terms of physiotherapy, which I know is an interest of yours, um, I think, you know, I love physiotherapy, but I, for conservative management, I tend to be, you know, very strict for the first four weeks. That makes sense. But there are papers out there that talk about doing physiotherapy in that first four weeks. It's just, there's no real consensus. So I don't think it's wrong either way. It's just more... I tend to think, okay, the the lease that they're walking around, maybe we can stabilize a little bit more. And then after the four weeks, I get them into rehabilitation, mostly to actually get them to lose weight and to maintain that mobility, which I think is so important. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, and definitely, I think, you know, we do have a lot of people that uh, that do um, consult with us and and many just want actually another opinion about, you know, whether or not, you know, surgery would be the best bet. And many a time, you know, exactly like you said, if they're bigger dogs and, you know, everything sort of depends on their expectations and what what the, I always say what the job of the dog mm-hmm. is, right? So mm-hmm. if it's just a little wee dog that's sitting on the couch eating bonbons with their client, mm-hmm. you're just, you know, maybe, maybe physio is a way to go. But, you know, some people um, also want things fixed tomorrow, the next mm-hmm. day. So even sometimes small dogs were sending over to surgery first because they don't want to invest in the, um, you know, the, the, the rest and the, you know, the first, the healing period, the first mm-hmm. four weeks of rest, and then, you know, considering physiotherapy. So that's, um, that's very, um, very helpful. Um, so is there anything clients or vets can do to prevent CCL injuries? I know a lot of people, um, uh, will ask that because I, I understand that once a dog has an injury on one leg, there's a, a, a greater than, I think it was 40 to 60% chance, um, that, um, the dog will injure the other leg. Um, is there anything we can do or what should we be telling our clients? Yeah. So I think this is a tough question. I get mm-hmm. this all the time. Sure. You know, if, you know, they have another dog or, yep. you know, their Wouldn't dog do. and they're worried about the other leg. And I would say, yes, it's about 40 to 60% chance that the other leg will go within the next year. Okay. And so it's, it's quite it's a, a cost sometimes, right? Because mm-hmm. we do the first leg and then it's all of a sudden it's a similar cost within a year. And so I think unlike in human medicine, CCL injuries are actually degenerative in nature, meaning that they, right. the, the ligament tears little by little every time the dog's doing something. It's done a million times before. And there are multiple kind of factors that lead to the, the degeneration of this ligament. And I think, you know, there's a lot of money being spent in research trying to prevent this because this is, you know, very common surgery, obviously, that we do in orthopedics. I think, you know, the main aims that I give clients and vets to uh, attempt to prevent uh, CCL rupture is to really keep dogs at a good weight. Mm -hmm. And so I find if they're, you know, overweight or really fat, um, fat can be, it's been proven to be inflammatory, right? Right. And so they're systemically inflammatory. And so when they develop this issue in their knee, it just makes it a lot worse. The fat also can affect surgery, right? If we're doing surgery on a a fatter Mm -hmm. dog uh, or an overweight dog, um, I find a lot of times they're predisposed to infection um, just because they are overweight. So there's a higher risk of infection. And so I usually try my best to see if I can get them down in weight before I do a a procedure like this, because as I said, it is elective. So, you know, I do try and fix it sooner rather than later, but I want to make sure that they have the best chance of success because I treat kind of every patient as if it was my dog. So right. it's, you know, how can I get them the best the best outcome? And I just worry with, with fat being so inflammatory. And then the other thing that I recommend um, mm-hmm. is physiotherapy just okay. because that one helps to reduce weight because a lot sure. of times these dogs are really painful, right? So they yeah. can't They're not walk. walking. Yeah. And so it's really hard for, for me to go and say, okay, well, you know, take your dog for 
longer yeah. walks. Well, that's great in concept, but it just doesn't can't do happen. It. Sure. And so I love like the underwater treadmill mm-hmm. uh, where you can kind of use their body weight as kind of a buoyancy factor and have them walk longer right. and it preserves mobility and it, it kind of increases the muscle mass, which first of all makes a better recovery after surgery. True. Um, and also kind of allows them to recover a little bit faster, you know, from from the inflammation of it. So I think those are kind of the the big things. I think it's mm-hmm. very difficult once a dog has been spayed or neutered sure. um, to kind of keep that weight keep off. The weight of off. Them. Yeah. yeah, we like to call it prehab. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> prehab and rehab. So, yeah. but sometimes I mean we do have uh, you know cases where the people will start you know the underwater treadmill therapy and the exercise therapy with their physiotherapy program here, uh, waiting for their appointment, mm-hmm. and then they go to surgery, and then we'll sort of start uh, yeah. rehab. Um, usually, but two weeks after. Does it sound about right? Two weeks after. Um, surgery. Yeah, surgery. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I usually like to to leave them alone at least for two weeks. Sometimes mm-hmm. I'll do a month depending on yep. how, how the surgery doing. is. Um, but I do like them to at least start with. You know, they don't, they're not running around, right. um, but they're doing, you know, these passive range of motion exercises, uh, yeah. weight shifting, things like that really help. And I do find True. actually just that since we're talking about post-op care, that usually the dogs recover a little bit slower on the second side. Oh, I'm interesting. Sure. Okay. It's like a personal that's interesting. thing that myself and some of my colleagues yeah. have seen. I have heard people say that and we say, oh, no the first one was so quick. And the second yeah. One. yeah. And it's yeah. And just, yeah. And it's random. nothing different. Yeah. Like it could be the no. exact same surgeon, the yeah. exact same surgery. It's just, they seem to recover a little bit slower. And so I think with that, you know, in no that way. aspect, rehab is really nice. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. We spend a lot of time saying to people, you know, keep, keep lean, keep strong, keep moving. And that's probably um, something that, you know, people should listen to for themselves too. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, probably said all day long. So yeah, and I wish there was some, you know, people ask about, you know, nutraceuticals and medications and like, you know, what can I do to prevent it? And I think, you know, like you said, I think you hit the nail on the head. Unfortunately, it's, you know, keep lean, keep strong, right? Yeah. So you know, yeah. try your best. So yeah. um, so this uh, episode of Vet Sessions is generously sponsored by OVC Pet Trust. OVC Pet Trust, a charitable fund based at the University of Guelph's Ontario Veterinary College, funds groundbreaking research and discovery to improve companion animal health. In fact, today's guest, Dr. Melissa MacGyver, um, is an OVC Pet Trust funded researcher um, whose work explores treating elbow dysplasia with stem cell therapy. And so we'll we'll learn a little bit about that from uh, Melissa in just a minute. To learn more about the work of OVC Pet Trust, please visit www.pettrust.ca. So to continue on here and, and maybe to change the subject a little bit, um, I do understand that you're currently doing some some research on stem cell therapy. So um, so tell us a little bit about this. Yeah. So um, as I said, I did my master's in stem cell therapy, and I think it was something that I had never really contemplated uh, mm-hmm. researching. It was just that was the project that they had during my residency, and Great. I was very lucky because I think I learned a lot. Um, so you know, to start, you know, my research is is really focusing on elbow dysplasia patients, and so elbow dysplasia is a, a blanket term uh, for common a common orthopedic condition of the canine elbow, resulting in uh, that intermittent or persistent for limb lameness. Mm-hmm. It affects primarily large and giant breed growing dogs around four to seven months of age with both forelimbs usually typically affected. The exact underlying cause for elbow dysplasia has yet to be determined, which can be extremely frustrating for mm-hmm. owners. Um, but it's again believed to be multifactorial with genetic predisposition. So we usually don't recommend breeding them. Uh, growth rate, environmental factors as common theories. And elbow dysplasia is really a term that encompasses several developmental abnormalities of the elbow joint that can ultimately lead to arthritis and degenerative joint disease and 
ultimately disuse of the limb. Mm -hmm. And so the conditions that kind of fall under elbow dysplasia include, you know, the fragmented medial coronoid process, OCD lesions of the humeral trochlea, ununited ankyneal processes, and articular cartilage damage and joint incongruity. Okay. And so I find a lot of times, you know, and there's a, a recent study that came out that looked at surgical management versus medical management of these cases. And now, the the one thing that I would say is that they considered dogs of all ages. And so I they found that surgical treatment may not necessarily be more beneficial than medical management. Mm. And so I think it it presents owners with a complex issue. Sure. Um, to try and work around because their dog is lame at home. Absolutely. And they want to do something, but it's not a quick fix for me. So I can scope mm-hmm. the fragments out and things like that. Um, and so what this is doing is currently the treatment can include, as I said, surgical or medical management, which both really may have possible consequences. And the mm-hmm. medical management, we kind of just add on things. So we start with a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, right. so that pain medication, and then we kind of just add on things until the dog's not painful. Right. Um, but a lot of times they can have side effects, so the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so because of all these complications, regenerative medicine um, and the use of mesenchymal stromal cells or stem cells has kind of been investigated and so for those of you that don't know mesenchymal stromal cells or stem cell therapy really revolves around cells that are in their primitive state so they're very young they haven't kind of developed into the cells that they're going to yet Um, and they can regulate the immune response and regenerate damaged tissues and so as arthritis is a form of inflammation of the joint the mesenchymal stromal cells injected into the joint have been shown to decrease that inflammation allowing for more patient comfort. And in some veterinary literature, the use of these, we call them MSCs, um, in the treatment of arthritis has been really promising, demonstrating improved lameness, pain, and range of motion in these patients, which is really important. That's great. Um, And so it may be really a promising new treatment for those dogs where surgery may not be an option or they've done the surgery and it hasn't helped. So how else can we make these dogs comfortable? So I think, you know, the purpose of the study is to really look objectively, and that's why we're using kind of the pressure mat and things like that to see if it if it does make a difference in the dog's weight bearing because I think you know you can give Mm -hmm. sometimes things to an owner and they you know think that it works because they're giving something we have that placebo effect and so you know I think having objective data that says yes this works or no it doesn't will really kind of steer us in the direction of whether it's really helpful for this disease process. Wow that sounds great and so um, amazing that you're able to um, incorporate some of the you know the things that you did um you know bef- before you came here at OBC and, and when you were in Florida and in Texas so that's um that's super cool um and then I understand that you're looking for candidates mm-hmm. um, um for this clinical study um so uh what uh, and who are you looking for and how can someone contact you um if they think they might be suitable yeah so we're currently looking for dogs that have d- been diagnosed with elbow dysplasia okay. and so that can either be through their regular vet where they've okay. had radiographs or they're highly suspicious um, if they're suspicious, they would refer the patients here, and um, I'll, I'll tell you how to enroll in a second. But uh, basically what I would do then is say, okay, I'd do my orthopedic exam, and if I was concerned, we would do an elbow CT. Okay. So a CT is a little bit more beneficial for me because it's like a 3D radiograph. That's how I kind of explain it. And Mm so, you know, the elbow is a complex joint where three bones have to fit together perfectly. Mm -hmm. And in these cases, sometimes they don't. And so that's where we kind of see all the different 
elbow dysplasia components and with CT it allows me to really see it as opposed to guessing a little bit on radiographs because of the summation of, right. of artifact and stuff. So um, I think it's it's re- a really nice study. I think elbow dysplasia is close to my heart because I think um, we just, I don't like... I don't mm-hmm. think we have an amazing treatment option yet, so I think we're still looking. Yes. Um, and the benefit of this study is we've already been approved by Health Canada. Oh, amazing. Um, yeah, so we, we were kind of scrutinized by them, which was great. You mm-hmm. know, I always, you know, brag when, when we're approved by Health Canada because sure. I think they, they make sure that everything's very safe. Absolutely. So I, I do That's really like that. Um, and the company uh, that's sponsoring the workup and treatment of these patients uh, is EQ Cell. Um, and so... Uh, those those cases are actually going to be uh, funded by that company. Um, and so everything's kind of sponsored and paid for, uh, which is really nice for these sure. patients. Absolutely. And so um, uh, dogs, does it matter how old they are or what sex they are or it doesn't matter? No, I, at this point, we just want dogs that have okay. not, um, either they've undergone surgical management, but it's okay. been about six months, okay. um, or they haven't undergone surgical management and they're having that, that lameness issue and they're quite painful. And so we'll, we'll attempt to hopefully resolve some of that pain with the stem cell therapy. Okay. And does it matter if they're on medication? Um, we do or? expect them to be on a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. Okay. Yeah. Uh, if they aren't, then we'll probably place them on one okay. um, just so that everybody starts at the same level. Okay. Um, and then how would someone contact clinical studies or, or yourself to, um, to inquire more, whether it's the veterinary team or potentially a, a listener? Yeah. So to enroll in the study, um, you would contact the ovcclinicaltrials.uoguelph.ca. Perfect. Um, that's that's really exciting. I'm so happy to hear uh, about the study. Uh, myself as a, a rehabist, I have to say that um, rehabbing the TPLOs is, is, is a great thing and we get excellent success because it's such a great surgery. Um, but um, with elbows, yeah, it can be very frustrating. My, my own dog suffers from front limb issues and um, it's it's a tough one and I, I'm looking forward to hearing the results of this. I hope they're positive. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you always hope, right? Yeah. So yeah. That's fantastic. Well, Melissa, it's been so fantastic to talk to you. We always love having you. Um, thank you for, for all your, your work here. And it's um, uh, so interesting to hear more about TPLOs and elbows. And uh, we'll have to have you back sometime because I know there's so many exciting orthopedic procedures. Um, so thank you to our listeners for following us uh, today and listening. Um, if you have any questions or any ideas, please feel free to email uh, us uh, vetsessions at hotmail.com. And please do follow us on Instagram at vetsessions.